Chapter 10 of Confessions of a Tradesman by Frank T. Bullen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Wayne Cook. The Cottage Donne. There must have been in the minds of those who have read so far, and who have had some practical experience themselves, a dim inquiry. How did this feeble tradesman keep out of the county court? For to those who have ever been in a like position to mine, the terror of the county court, the nearest approach to the caddie under the palm tree that modern jurisprudence can know, has been ever present. It is true that after I became unable to pay my wholesale purveyor's bills as they came in, I was put to great straits in writing, requesting, yes, begging, for time to pay for what I had bought, because I had not yet sold it, nor, indeed, had I any hope of doing so. These, however, were not the people to sue me in a small debts court, nor, since I never had credit from the neighboring shopkeepers, had I any difficulty with them, poor people, whose only remedy, and that a weak one, with rogues, lay in the county court. Thus it came about that I only knew the charming little one-story building on the Camberwell New Road, which some delightful writer, I forget who, has characterized as a cottage honne, by sight and its inscription, cut into the stucco of its facade, Lambeth County Court never gave me a qualm. Every day I passed it either on foot or, when I was well-to-do, on the twenty-four-a-shilling tram, which ran from Camberwell Green to Vauxhall Station. And it really never occurred to me that one day I should be all too familiar with the precincts. That day came, however, and in a peculiar manner. I had hinted that I was on none too good terms with my landlord, who lived next door, to be remembered, and our closer acquaintance did not at all improve our relations. The fact is, I suppose, that he never understood me, and I am sure I never understood him. He was trying to make a living out of his shop next door and the little property which I rented from him, and resented any attempts I made to compel him to render my premises more habitable. I naturally saw things from my own standpoint, and reprobated him for a soulless despot who, having secured me as a leasee of his rotten, tumble-down premises, expected me, while paying him a heavy rental, to keep them in repair, which I resented accordingly. And at last matters came to the pitch of my refusing to pay any more rent until that desirable message, which I was lease of, should have its roof repaired and made tentatable, as I put it, for human beings. He did not see eye to eye with me, and fell back upon the landlord's best friend, a bum bailiff, called in our vernacular, with every inflection of emphasis that dislike could suggest, the bum. A most unenviable occupation, and one requiring a front of brass, as well as a great deal of callous energy. Such men should have no feelings, and usually appear as if they had none, for they are willing for a consideration that all the odium incurred by the landlord should be transferred to them. 
There are, of course, exceptions to this general rule, for some bailiffs are kindly and generous and honest. But I, unfortunately, came across a bad specimen of the genus indeed. He entered my shop one day, during my absence, and inquired for me, well knowing that I was away at the office, and gradually wormed his way into the confidence of my wife by representing himself to her as a friend who was deeply interested in my welfare, and anxious to arrange amicably the little difference, as he put it, between my landlord and myself. She was quite won by his manner, and entertained him with tea until my arrival, when she introduced him to me in his assumed character. I was quite as easily gulled as she was, and after a few minutes' amicable conversation, during which he repeatedly professed to be able to smooth matters between my landlord and myself, as it was so undesirable that neighbors such as we should be on bad terms, I showed him over the house, and pointed out to him its deplorable condition. In this connection I also mentioned my many difficulties, and the impossibility of my undertaking the necessary repairs, even if I felt disposed to, which I most emphatically did not. This confidence of mine corroborated what my wife had been telling him, though that I did not then know, and should have made him sorry for the task that he had set himself. But presently, to my amazement, he said, quite casually, "Well." About this quarter's rent, don't you think you'd better pay it and save trouble? I stared at him for a moment, not even then realizing that I had been entertaining a wolf in sheep's clothing, and then replied, I couldn't pay it anyhow before the end of the month, it was then about the twentieth, but I shan't pay it until he makes the place fit to live in. Oh, well, he answered coolly. You know your own business best, I suppose. I've done all I can, and if you won't pay, I must leave a man in possession, that's all. He's waiting outside. There's my cart. And with that, he displayed to my horror-stricken gaze a piece of pasteboard on which the words broker and appraiser stood out apparently in letters of fire. My eyes were opened indeed, but it was too late. I could only promise to do what I could on the morrow, and plead that in the meantime he would keep his man off the premises, in view of the harm in a business sense it would undoubtedly do me. This, after much apparent cogitation, and very grudgingly, he consented to do on my solemn promise to have the money there for him, with his fee in addition, the next evening at six o'clock, and then he strode out with the air of a conqueror, all his suavity of demeanor having vanished with the necessity for it. Eight pounds to be obtained by six o'clock the next day. No credit anywhere, not a bit of portable property pawnable, and payday ten days off. Yes, I know what you are thinking, reader. Is it possible that this man had let his rent fall due without making any provision for it? To go into explanations would take far too long, and would, besides, not be over-profitable. So the easiest way is to say that I had been so foolish and improvident, and whatever other epithet may be chosen and not 
for the first time either. But hitherto I had always managed to pay up well within the usual days of grace allowed without having a bailiff presented to me. I'm afraid I did not get much sleep that night, which was unusual, for although I did not sleep long, I slept soundly as a rule. One fact stood out prominently in my memory. The advertisement of a philanthropist in one of the streets off the Adelphi, who was always prepared to advance a gentleman in permanent employment, who might be temporarily embarrassed, five pounds on their simple note of hand without any bothering security whatever. Prudence whispered, Don't do it. Necessity growled, You must. And so the next day, during my luncheon hour, I hurried with a thumping heart to the address given on the advertisement. The matter was simplicity itself. The gentleman was a well-fed young Hebrew of quiet manners, who merely asked me a civil question or two and referred to a red book. All right, Mr. Bullen, you can have five pounds on your signing this promissory note to pay five pounds, ten shillings, this day month. I accepted eagerly, shook hands cordially, and in two minutes was speeding back to the office with this precious fiver in my pocket. The making up of the other three pounds was a matter of much more difficulty, and I am not justified in giving details, but I hurried home at five with seven pounds, nineteen shillings, sixpence in my pocket and a feeling of ability to face anybody and anything. But, had I known it, I had just taken a step that cost me afterwards more suffering than I even now care to think of. That simple little fiver, so easily borrowed at 120% per annum, and parted with directly to pay a debt that ought never to have become a debt. Well, I cannot say that it was the beginning of sorrows, but it certainly was the beginning of a great ascension to the sorrows I already had, and I went home as glad as a boy who had just passed his first examination, as pleased as if I had just found five pounds, instead of having added some rivets to the chain already round my neck. The broker was waiting for me when I got home, when I saw him, I felt with a chill that he knew all that I had been doing to get his claim settled, and I greeted him manfully, but without effusion, lugging the money out of my pocket and pushing it over towards him. He countered it in silence and gave me a receipt, and then said, as if it were an afterthought, Oh, a friend of mine asked me to give you this, as I should be seeing you. This was a summons to the Lambeth County Court to give reasons why I should not summarily pay an account of seven pounds odd incurred for attendance and medicine some five months before. What I thought as I gazed at the document I do not know. What I said were the banal words, All right, I'll attend to it. Yes, I could attend to it. Returnable in a week's time, too. My pay of nine pounds, three shillings, fourpence never seemed to go very far in the settling of the demands made upon me, but this month it seemed as if it were a mere farce to take it up at all. So little would it do. And then there were the poor rates. 
the gas account, the water rate, and a few other little things of that kind, to say nothing of the perfectly ridiculous, yet nevertheless imperative necessity of obtaining food for six persons. However, as long as the demands were not made on the spur of the moment, as it were, I felt like the immortal macabre, that something might turn up. And so I went stolidly on my way, only carefully noting the date of my enforced appearance at the county court. My chief difficulty at this troublous time, as it always was afterwards while I was a shopkeeper, was the absence of ready money, even in such small amounts as might suffice to pay the few pence required to pay my fare to and from the office on a wet day. This gave an exquisite relish to the farce of receiving not merely begging circulars, but visits of calling beggars, whether they boldly asked alms or in a confidential manner requested the loan of a few shillings for a fortnight. When the day of my appearance at court arrived, I was punctual in my attendance, having obtained a day's leave from the office, and I must admit that in spite of the urgency of my own private affair, I found it possible to take a great amount of interest and find a great deal of amusement in what was going on. I must also confess that I was really appalled at the utter disregard of the value of the oath taken by those appearing as plaintiffs or defendants. It was rare indeed to find in any case that the plaintiff did not swear one thing and the defendant the exact opposite. The duty of the registrar, I had not made the acquaintance of the judge yet, seemed to consist of deciding which was the most likely story out of each pair told him, and act accordingly. And as I was not called upon till midday, I heard a great deal of this, so much indeed that I felt full of wonder how any man could occupy such a position as that presiding officer did, and retain any belief in what anybody said. At last my case was called, and it was simplicity itself. "'Do you owe this money?' queried the registrar sharply. "'Yes, sir,' I replied. "'Then why don't you pay it?' was the next and most obvious question. "'Because I can't,' I answered humbly, and was proceeding to explain those reasons, although I could see the gentleman I was addressing was taking no notice of me, when he suddenly stopped me and called upon my creditor, who I may say was not the doctor, but an agent to whom the doctor paid a percentage for collecting his debts, to give evidence of my means. He stated what he knew very fairly, that is, that I kept the shop and I had a permanent situation, upon which the registrar ordered me to pay within a fortnight and called the next case. I was, of course, mightily astonished at being so peremptorily silenced especially as I felt sure that from what I had seen that morning I should have got on much better had I denied the debt altogether. But I was only then commencing my acquaintance with our laws as affecting debtor and creditor, wherein at every turn a premium is placed upon dishonesty and falsehood, and the honest debtor seldom obtains either justice or mercy. Of that, however, later on. That first experience of mine in the county court, apart altogether from my personal interest in it, was a serious revelation to me. I had no idea before how futile were the oath-takings with what lightness of heart 
men and women perjured themselves. I do not mean by that any reference to difficulty of expression or treachery of memory, but deliberate lying upon oath, and that too about such trivial matters as a few shillings, or even, as it appeared to me, for the sake of preventing a friend from losing a case. Also, I was amazed to see how lightly this matter was regarded by the officials, for I had always looked upon perjury as a crime of such magnitude as to be even spoken of with bated breath. But these officials lived in an atmosphere of perjury, and had, I suppose, grown case-hardened. At any rate, they heard it all day long, and took no heed as far as I could see. I make no excuse for referring to this matter again, because of what I believe to be its tremendous significance. Another thing in which I first became much interested was the ease with which anybody possessed of sufficient impudence and plausibility could accumulate debt, repudiate it, or ignore it, or delay paying any part of it until summoned for it, and then quite easily, as it appeared to me, get off by paying a ridiculous sum per month. Here, in many cases, I failed to see any justice at all. To illustrate my meaning, I will quote two typical cases. The first was that of a man who did not appear himself, but sent his young wife, who was rather good-looking, very smartly dressed, and completely equipped with saucy self-confidence and with much power of repartee. The debt was fifteen pounds for meat supplied from day to day. Small amounts had been paid off the ever-growing bill, but at last the butcher, who was in a very small way of business, feeling that his hopes of ever getting his money were growing so faint as to almost disappear altogether, summoned the debtor for the amount. Undoubtedly he had been very patient, but then if such patience were not common among small traders, however would the poor live? The debt was not denied, for a wonder, but the lady pleaded, "'My husband's been out of work for got many weeks. I ain't earning more than fifteen shillings a week now. Me wash up and so we can't pay this money.' "'But you have still been running up the bill,' said the judge. "'Yes, your worship,' said the lady. "'We had to live, you see.' Upon being appealed to for leniency to the debtor under these sad conditions, the butcher successfully proved that the consumer of his meat had four carts and six horses, and kept four men in constant employment. As to being ill or out of work, these statements were pure embroidery. The whole concern was in flourishing order, and had been for years. The butcher wound up by declaiming indignantly, "'And I got her fight a bloke like that in grub. Well, I got her pay me cart and brass down a nail for him, as could buy and sell me twice over any day. It did seem queer. But the net result was that the debtor was condemned to pay his debt of fifteen pounds and costs off at the rate of five shillings per month, and the lady danced out of the witness box with a moi full of derision at the hapless butcher. Lest this may seem to be an especially chosen incident, I here assert that such a case is particularly common and typical, as is the next case I quote, but the reason for the difference in treatment I leave wiser heads than mine to determine. A pale, slender man, deeply dressed, and giving his occupation as that of a clerk, 
was summoned by a doctor for debt and costs of five pounds ten shillings. This, by the way, was at another county court and before a judge. Asked why he did not pay the bill, the defendant pleaded that the amount originally asked was excessive, inasmuch as it was for three visits and two bottles of medicine. He further stated that he was just emerging from a long period of unemployment and that his wages were now two pounds per week. Without calling upon the doctor, the judge thundered at the unfortunate debtor, Who are you to assess the value of the doctor's services? Pay the whole amount within a fortnight. That'll do. I won't hear another word. Next case. The hapless debtor went slowly down and out, as much surprised as I was, doubtless, at the strange inequalities of justice. The case was peculiarly noticeable in that the defendant, having moved a long way from the neighborhood after incurring the debt, had voluntarily returned to the doctor with the first money he had earned to pay his bill, and only refused on account of what he considered its exorbitant amount. I make no comment. I only wonder. Now came for a time a blessed relief. Not that it is from any of the major burdens, but from my most pressing necessities. Orders flowed in from all quarters, and I found the utmost difficulty in keeping pace with them. I used to get up at half-past two or three in the morning, and after making myself a cup of tea, to get to work with such furious energy that I look back upon it now with utter amazement. Many and many a time I have done what anybody might consider a really good day's work before breakfast time. I never had any breakfast, or, say, eight o'clock, when I must needs wash and dress and rush off to my office work where I was due at nine. By the time one o'clock came, I had a decent appetite, which I stayed very cheaply, my early experience now standing me in good stead. A halfpenny loaf, a penny worth of cheese, halfpenny beetroot or penny tomato with a half pint of mother-in-law, stout and bitter, to wash it down with, used to make me a very good meal at the cost of threepence or fourpence. Or I would, if flesh of money, have a quarter of boiled pork and a hayporth of peas pudding, which with a halfpenny loaf or a halfporth of potatoes made a sumptuous meal, and one that I enjoyed far more than any elaborate banquets I have ever attended since, and the total cost never exceeded sixpence. Such meals had a relish all their own, and if business drove me to a cook-shop for the orthodox cut of the off-joint and two vegetables for sixpence, I never enjoyed it as well, with one exception. A local cook-shop made a specialty of stewed steak, at least that is what they called it, though it was really shin of beef, and it was very good and satisfying, with plenty of thick brown gravy. The only charge fourpence for it, so that, with a penny worth of potatoes and halfpenny worth of pudding afterwards, I could make a really good meal for sixpence. Here I learned what was of great use to me, a lesson that I now see inculcated on every hand, how small a quantity of food the body really needs to do good work upon, and conversely, how much more food than is really necessary the average man or woman does consume. But I cannot take any credit for this learning, for like so many other useful lessons conveyed to us, it was compulsory. I had no choice but to learn it. The result has been, at any rate, that the pleasures of the table have never since then meant anything to me 
one plain meal in the middle of the day sufficing for all my needs, and keeping me in such good health as the results of my overwork will allow me. Still, I should be very sorry to go about endeavoring to force other people to go and do likewise, because I have learned very thoroughly how great a factor is individuality, and how true is the old proverb that one man's meat is another man's poison. And I humbly think that if some of our vociferous propagandists would learn that lesson also, it would be much better for the general peace. End of chapter 10